0: Welcome to the podcast of Sozo Church. For more information about Sozo, please visit SozoSMTX.com. How are we doing tonight, guys? A little quiet in here. We're doing all right? Come on. Anyone excited for Christmas right around the corner? Okay, no one's excited for Christmas. Still a little Christmas shopping to do, yeah? Aren't you thankful for the internet? Aren't you thankful that we don't have to go wait in line at the, at the, uh, the outlet mall over there? It gets crazy. Um, this is a good season, and I want to encourage you in that before we jump in. It's a good season uh, to celebrate. So in all of your doing, in all of your gathering, remember the reason why we're gathering. And I know 2020 has been a crazy year, um, unlike anything we've ever experienced. But I just think it's really important in this season to pause and to remember what we're celebrating. We're celebrating the coming of Jesus, amen? And so we're in our second week of Advent, and um, I love Advent. I love everything that this season um, entails. Before I I do that, I want to do one thing. Let me backtrack just a second. Um, We have um, something really special real quick. Gavin Dunning, can you raise your hand? There we go. Uh, Gavin, this is his last Sunday with us. He is actually leaving for the Air Force on Tuesday, And uh, this guy has been training and and just believing God. And he's not just training to go into the Air Force, he's training for special forces. And I have gotten to know him over the past year. And I just want us to extend our hands really quick and bless Gavin um, and send him into the next season. So Gavin, we bless you. God, we thank you for his life. We thank you that you're not just stumbling into the season, but that you're being sent on assignment into the season. So we bless him, Lord. We say that he has all that he needs in Jesus' name. Amen. Gavin's awesome. Um, So Advent, we're in our second week of Advent, and uh, we're gonna be talking today about truth, which I'm really excited about. What we're doing is we're looking at the passage in John chapter 14, where Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And I love Advent, and the reason why is because I, over the past few years, have begun to fall in love with this concept of the incarnation of Jesus, The incarnation meaning that God took on flesh and bones, he took on flesh and blood, and he dwelled among humanity. And I I love this picture that God gives us, that we wouldn't have to figure out what God looked like from afar, but that he would come show us what he looked like face to face. Aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful that Jesus came and lived among us? And so that's what we're celebrating, that the God of the universe, perfectly human, perfectly God, would Intertwine in the person of Jesus and walk among him, literally walking on dirt that he created, staring humanity in the face, the ones he created, and then he saves the world from the inside out. So that's what we're celebrating is this coming of Jesus and all that that entails. And so we're going to talk about truth today. If we could get John 14 up on the screen, John 14 verse six says, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How many of you guys know that truth is important? Yeah, truth is incredibly important, and uh, so we're going to talk about truth, and I just think this message is really important uh, because we live in a world where there's kind of this new concept that has arrived on the scene probably in the past 10 years or so, and it's this concept of us finding our own truth. How many of you guys have heard that? You got to find your truth, right? Anybody else watch Oprah in here? just kidding. But that's kind of the whole concept. That's the world we live in is that you have a truth. I have a truth. As long as your truth doesn't interfere with my truth, then we're going to be okay. And I just think that in a world where there's this finding your own truth, we need more than ever a revival of the truth. What is the truth? And I believe that the world is desperate for a revival of truth. We live in a world today that is different than any other time in history. I'm sure every generation could say that, but I'm believing that even at the end of this year, the world looks so much different right now than it did just like 11 months ago, right? How many of you guys can remember January 2020? You guys remember January I almost forgot that it even existed, right? The world we live in today is incredibly different. And I was telling Joel this the other day. I think even in the past 10 years that our world has progressed in what feels almost like 40 or 50 years, the world is so much different than it was. This is not the world that our grandparents lived in, amen? And so there's this world where people are embracing their own truths and it's this clashing of this is what I believe and this is what you believe and everyone has their own truth and it's almost as if you said, I believe in a truth or the truth that you're too offensive for the world. We live in something, I've been, kind of been studying this over the past 12 months or so, we live in something that is known as, uh, most people would call it postmodern culture, a post-Christian culture. And what that simply means is is the world that we once knew 40, 50 years ago, where most of the people that you interacted with were Christian, that world is not so anymore. So we live in this postmodern world, and there's a man named Mark Sayers, I listen to a lot of his teachings, and uh, he describes postmodernism as this. He says, postmodern culture can be defined as people who want the benefits of the kingdom, but they don't want the king. People who want the concepts of the kingdom, they want peace, they want equality, they want all of those things, but they want to get it my way, and I think that's the world in which we live in. I do ministry up on campus, and I'd say probably eight to 10 people that I talk to on a regular basis. These are my statistics just on my experience, but probably eight to 10 people, eight out of 10 people that I talk to on a daily basis would either identify as agnostic or atheist, which is crazy, right? Like, I grew up in Southeast Texas, and and it's like country, and everyone's Christian. It it doesn't even matter, like, you know, it's like, everyone's Christian. Even if you've never been to church before, people would identify as Christian. But now fewer and fewer people are identifying as Christian, and it's kind of crazy that this is the world that we live in, but I want to say this about our generation. I want to speak to my generation, where my young people at, any young people in the house. I believe that though this generation may look like statistically the most unchurched, non-Christian generation that has ever existed, I believe that there is still a hunger for truth. I believe there's still a hunger for authenticity. I believe that there's still a hunger to have the answers, uh, the, the, the deep questions of their heart answered in a real way. And I'm just convinced more than ever that maybe, just maybe, they're not not interested in God, maybe they're just not interested in the God that we've presented. Maybe the world isn't as uninterested in the God that we know as much as they are uninterested in the God, the religion, the legalism that has been passed down from generation to generation. And so I wanna talk about truth today because the truth is not a doctrine, the truth is not a concept, the truth is not a set of rules and principles, the truth is a person and his name's Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, I have the truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. And I believe that Jesus is the most attractive person that has ever walked the planet. He's the most beautiful person that has ever lived. And I believe that Jesus is still beautiful and he's still drawing men unto himself. And I think that as we begin to see the truth for what it is, all of the untruths that we've embraced about God will begin to unravel. Anybody want some of those untruths unraveled in your lives? Anyone wanna see God for who he really is? Amen. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna talk about truth, and I wanna talk about two different truths today. I wanna talk first about the truth about God, and then I wanna talk about the truth about us. And so as we jump in today, we're gonna talk a little bit about the truth about God. It's gonna be really simple, but I believe if your hearts are open, it's gonna impact you today. The truth about God, understanding who God is, is the foundation for everything we do. A.W. Tozer said this, he says, the most important thing a Christian can do is to think rightly about God. The most important thing a Christian can do is to see God clearly. I don't know about you, but many of us have been handed frames and lenses by which we see through, and they're kind of dirty. So when we look at God, it's really hard to see God as good because we've been kind of taught that maybe God's not that good, or maybe he's angry with us, or maybe he's kind of bipolar, amen? But I believe that the more we see God for who he is we begin to understand who we are as well. And so, we're gonna talk about the truth about God, and if we're honest, most of the church still has questions about who God is. Like, if you go to different church services, you're probably gonna hear a similar message, but there are major differences in what people believe. We, we ask questions like, if we're honest, like, is God really good? Or is he kind of like angry sometimes too? Anyone else ask that question? Like do do we really believe that God is good all the time? We say that, but then we're like, man, maybe he's not good all the time. Is God the healer or does he give people sickness? Is God merciful and gracious or does he expect me to live perfect every single day? The question or the answer to that question really does depend on what church you go to on a Sunday. We all ask these questions, right? What does God look like? What is the truth about God? And I believe that the only way that we can see God for who he really is is by revelation that we could only embrace who God is if he reveals it to us. And thank God he reveals it to us in scripture. So go back to John chapter 14. I wanna go a little bit deeper into this text. We're gonna look at verses six through nine. I believe this is one of the most important things that Jesus teaches us in the gospels. If we get this, it will answer so many of our questions about what God is like. So look with me at verse six. Jesus answered, we just read, I am the way, the truth, and the life, No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And I love how Jesus answered in verse nine. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been around you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? It's a simple text we've probably read over it many times, but Philip is asking Jesus, hey, you've been talking about your father. Will you show us what God looks like? Can you show us what the father looks like? And Jesus responds, what are you talking about? You've been with me all this time. Don't you understand? If you've seen me, you've seen the father. This is huge. And this brings us to point number one. The first truth I wanna talk about about God is that God looks like Jesus. Tell your neighbor, God looks like Jesus. Now, I know that's a simple truth, but this is a massive thing that we have to embrace because I believe that Jesus is precisely what God has to say about himself. We have questions about what God looks like, and we look at the entirety of Scripture, and it's really confusing at times. If we're honest, we look at the Old Testament, we look at the New Testament, we're like, man, these things kind of contradict themselves. And Jesus comes onto the scene, and he says, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen God. So God looks like Jesus. If you want to know how God feels about sinners, look at Jesus. He sat at a table with them. He ate and drank with them. If you want to know how God feels about the outcast and the marginalized and those on the fringes, it's the people that Jesus fought for. If you want to know how Jesus feels about the sick and the hurting and the dying, follow his ministry around. He did nothing but heal and raise the dead. Everything that you need to know, this is a bold statement, Everything you need to know about God can be found in the person of Jesus. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And I I think that many of our misconceptions about who God is stem from us gleaning more from the Old Testament picture of God than the God that is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. We have many questions because we look at the Old Testament and we frame our theology around what God looks like when Jesus comes and he says, hey, I know you've had all these misconceptions. I know you think you know who God is, but I came for one purpose and it's to show you who God really, really is. That's the whole reason Jesus came to earth. Yes, to pay for our sins, but it was also to fix our broken lenses. It was to fix our distorted ideas about who God was. The most religious people on the earth, the Pharisees, the people who thought they knew who God was are the people that Jesus was constantly with a finger in their face telling them, you don't understand who God is. And so Jesus is the perfect representation of who God is. You guys with me? So for me, I, I kind of grew up um, you know, with this confusing thing of not knowing, you know, is, the, is God really good? Because I kind of always saw it as the old covenant God was like really, really angry, and then the New Testament God was like really, really nice. Anyone else there? It's like, man, we have the the bad cop and the good cop, and so you have the Father who's like really mad and like lightning bolts and judgment, and then Jesus comes and he's like, hey, you know, like all butterflies and rainbows, and and, and it's almost like you have this double side to God. You have the good side and the bad side. And so for me, it was really hard to reconcile with the Father because I thought the Father was really, really angry, and so when I prayed, I only prayed to Jesus. I didn't really wanna pray to the Father because I didn't really know how he felt about me. And so when Jesus says something like, "Hey, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father," it's like, "What are you talking about?" Which leads us to this point I want to talk about for a second. We talk about this often, um, but, but, but the, the Bible is a story of redemption. And so I want to help you for a second just in reading the Bible, and this isn't my uh, material. This is all from Steve Smothers. Thank you, Steve Smothers. Anybody thankful for Steve Smothers' teaching? Guy's incredible. One thing I've learned from Steve in, in conversations with him is that the Bible is a story of redemption, meaning you can't look at the old covenant at people who are living under the law and get the best representation of who God is, okay? The story, the Bible is a story. It's a journey. It's a story of redemption. Let me give you an example. When you look at the old covenant and you look at the story of Abraham, and Abraham is one of the first people um, that is called by God. So God calls Abraham, and just imagine, Abraham's just like out hanging out, and God calls him. He doesn't even have a name for God yet. Uh, he has no context for who this God is. All he knows is that God makes him a promise that your kids are going to be more than the stars in the sky. Wow, it's pretty big, right? So Abraham goes to follow uh, this God that is called him, and then God asks Abraham to do something ridiculous, He says, Abraham, I want you to take your son, and I want you to take your son onto this mountain. I want you to sacrifice your son. Go and do it. We read these stories. We read these stories in in Sunday school. We read these stories in church and things like that, and we're just like, yeah, no, that's cool. Like, God asked Abraham to kill his son. That's normal, right? But if we think about that, like, that is grotesque. Like, that is barbaric. What kind of God asked someone to kill their son, right? Right? Like, it's kind of crazy to think about, unless you look at it in the context of where Abraham was. So, Abraham is living his life worshiping God, and around Abraham, there are all these other pagan gods. And all the people, all of Abraham's friends, all the people like at the country club, are worshiping their own pagan gods. And one of the big things in pagan worship is that pagan worship demanded child sacrifice. So everyone that Abraham knows, they're sacrificing their children on a daily basis, which is crazy to think about. So when God says to Abraham, I want you to go sacrifice your son, he's like, okay, cool, like this is what God does. And he takes his son, even though this is the son that God had promised him, he takes him to the mountain to sacrifice him. And then God does something incredible. Instead of him sacrificing his son, he provides a ram in the thicket so that the ram could be sacrificed instead of the son. What was God doing in the story? Is God barbaric? Does God want you to sacrifice your children? No. What God is doing is he is stepping into Abraham's world and he's showing him, hey, I'm a little bit better than all the other gods in your area. And so God is at point A, man is at point Z, and instead of God speaking to us from over here, he steps in at about point Y and he gets into our world and he says, I'm a little bit better than the other gods. And so the story, it's what we call progressive revelation. It's not that God progresses over time, it's just that our revelation of God progresses over time. Does that make sense? So the Bible is a storybook of God constantly revealing himself more and more and more and more and more until we get to the clearest picture of what God looks like, and that's Jesus. Scripture says Jesus the fullness of the Godhead dwelled inside of Jesus. Jesus says, If you've seen me, you've seen God. He says, He was the exact representation of who God was. And the reason I share this with you for a second is I want us to embrace this concept that Jesus is the clearest picture of God. And what this will do is it'll break off the lie that God's in a bad mood. It'll break off that bipolar thing that we see on God between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we'll realize that we can trust that when we look at Jesus and how he felt about people and how he ministered and how he did all those things, that that is the clearest picture about who God is. Jesus doesn't just contain the truth. Jesus is the truth. So that's the first point. God looks like Jesus. I need to move quick. The second point is that God is love. God is love. 1 John chapter four says this, verses seven through eight. It says, beloved, let us love one another because love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. Now we also know about God that God is gracious that God is merciful, that God is righteous, that God is just, and all of these things are good, but they're all adjectives to describe who God is. But let me help you understand something. God is not just loving. God does not just love us. God is love itself. Not just the verb love, but the noun verb. God is self-defined as love. That word agape, such a beautiful word, It's the God kind of love. It's the love that is other-centered, self-giving, other-centered, sacrificial love. This is who God is. And so because God is love, then everything that God does is motivated by his love. There is nothing that God can do that is outside of his love. It is who God is. I have people ask me all the time, "Well, well, you talk about the love of God, but what about the judgment of God? Like, what about God's judgment? It usually comes from people like on street corners with signs, you know? What about God's judgment? Listen, the judgments of God are aimed towards anything that would keep you from His love. The judgment of God is anything that would interfere with love's kind. God is love, so all of his judgments, we don't have to give up God's judgments to embrace his love. Everything he judges is things that keep us away from his perfect love. He is love. He is the embodiment of love. It is who he is. and I am just more convinced than ever that the world needs to hear the message of God's love. I think sometimes we hear that God loves us and we're just like, yeah, okay, like what next? No, that's it. He loves us. And I think the world needs to know that God loves them. Not like the cute t-shirt, coffee mug, bumper sticker kind of love. Like the love that would take on flesh and blood, move heaven and earth. Literally, oh, I just think of this. Jesus came and he yielded his life into the hands of murderers. He came and he's, he handed himself over to people knowing they would kill him, and it was all for love. This is who God is. He is other-centered. He is self-giving. He is sacrificial, and everything he does, the very core of God's nature is always moving towards you and towards me, and this is the kind of truth that I believe the world is longing to hear that I think the world is frustrated with hypocrisy and religion, but they want to know if you say that God is love, would you show me this God who is love? And I think that Jesus is longing to reveal himself to us as the God of love, as the God of love. So the truth about God. Now I wanna talk just for a second about the truth about us because what I found is that when we see God for who he is, we begin to understand who we are. It's only in light of us understanding who God is that we begin to embrace who we are as his children. Matthew 16, it's a beautiful story. Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's asking them, hey, who do men say that I am? People are giving answers, John the Baptist, Elijah, you know, uh, uh, you know the prophets of old. And then he tees up on Peter and he says, now, Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. Jesus responds to Peter, he says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but it was my father who has revealed this to you. And then, and Jesus says this to Peter, he says, behold, I call you Peter, which means rock. And then he says, on this rock, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against us. What do we see here? It's this principle that as we identify who God is, he in turn identifies who we are. So Peter says, you're Jesus. And Jesus turns and says, you're rock. And so if we want to know who we are, if we want to know the truth about ourselves, and I believe that the world is in an identity crisis. We need, the church is in an identity crisis. We need to know who we are. We need to know how God sees us, how God feels about us. And when we begin to see Jesus correctly, then we'll begin to see ourselves correctly. And so the truth about us, the first one is that we are a son. Say, I'm a son, Come on, say it like you mean it. I'm a son. Now, ladies, you get to be a son today. And the reason why is because the scripture uses the word son because the son is the one who gets the inheritance. And it's actually beautiful because the scripture says there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, which means women are not on the fringes. That you get the inheritance just like all the guys in the room as well. Amen? So you get to be a son. I get to wear a wedding gown because I'm the bride just alongside of you. So you are a son... And God is your father. And he's not your father in this like, this like abstract concept. He is your father, meaning you are born of God. You have the same DNA as him. Scripture says in 1 Peter 2 that you have been partakers of the heavenly nature. You're a son of God. Look at Romans 8, 14 through 17. It says, for those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. Now, if we're children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ. I want to talk for a quick second about that word adoption. This is so powerful. I've been looking at this over the past few weeks. That word adoption to sonship, So the Greek word, weothesia. And this word, weothesia, adoption is kind of the best translation that they could use for it, but it doesn't really mean adoption like in our Western sense of adoption. Weothesia can literally be translated, weos means son, thesia means placement. So it's placement as sons. Now, if you look at the life of a young Jewish boy, you go through three phases of life for every, for every Jewish boy. The first one is when you're eight days old, you go through something called circumcision. I don't have to explain that one, right? Circumcision, eight days old for the young Jewish boy. The second ceremony that a young Jewish boy would go through is something called bar mitzvah. And a bar mitzvah is a coming of age ceremony. It means son accountable. Every Jewish boy goes through this ceremony. We've heard of circumcision. We've heard of bar mitzvahs. And the third ceremony, we don't really know a lot about, but in ancient Jewish culture, they would go go through something called a weothesia ceremony. And in a weothesia ceremony, what would happen is, is this is when a son is coming to the age of maturity. And so as he comes into maturity, there would be this massive celebration of which the father would lay his hands on the son and he would say something that sounds like, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Sound familiar? He would say, I bestow upon you all the riches and power and authority so that you would act on behalf of myself in all of my affairs. Why is this important? Because this concept of adoption, this concept of being a son, is not the same as our Western concept, as in you have someone who is you know, maybe in a troubled home or, or an absent father or mother or, or in a situation like that. It's a beautiful thing, adoption is, and a, and, a, and a person from another family would go and adopt someone out. But what the scripture is talking about is that you are not adopted from another family. You are stepping into your rightful place in your own family. It's the placement of sons. Why is this important? because we need to understand that there's never been a day that you weren't a part of the family of God. There's never been a day that you were estranged from God. You have always been a part of the family. You are made in his image. And so what he's talking about here as adoption of sons is not that he went and got you from another family and brought you into his own family, but it's that when your eyes are open to who you really are, he places his hands on you and he says, now, you can go in the power of your father. So we're a part of the family. And I think this idea of sonship breaks off the lie that you were ever apart from him. You have never been apart from him. You have been a son all along. But when we come into the kingdom, our eyes are open and we realized and we could take our rightful place as sons of God. You've always been desired. There's never been a day that he has not desired you or not wanted you. The last point that I have for you truth about us. The first one, we are sons. The second one is that our name is beloved. Your name is beloved. If it is true that God is love, then it is also true that your name is beloved. That's how he feels about you. I want to read a few scriptures to you. Psalm 139 says, "'How precious to me are your thoughts, God.'" How vast is the sum of them? If I were to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand in the entire earth. Do you know that God has more thoughts about you than he does the number of grains of sand in the entirety of the universe? That is magnificent. Ephesians chapter two says that we are God's masterpiece. Zephaniah three says that he will sing over us. He will exult over us with loud singing. The Hebrew means dancing. God rejoices over you. He is in love with you. He has nothing other to say about you other than beloved. You are his beloved son, his beloved daughter. And I know this sounds like a simple truth, but I believe that to be the one that Jesus loves is one of the hardest truths to embrace. It's really easy to say, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. Yeah, I go to church. I'm a Christian. I'm a disciple. Because all of those things depend on what I do. But to say I'm the one that he loves is a whole different story. Because many of us wrestle with this concept of I'm not worthy of that kind of love. I don't feel like I'm good enough to receive that kind of love. But God doesn't want you to be defined by what you do or what you don't do. He wants you to be defined as beloved. That is your name. You are his beloved son, his beloved daughter. And I I think that one of the greatest atrocities in the Christian life is that people would try to do things for God without knowing that he loves them. Amen? So if the bank can come up, I want to finish with just this thought for us today. You know, I think the world is, is desperate for a revelation of the truth that the world is desperate for revelation of who God really is, and they need to know how God feels about them as well. And I think this piece here about beloved is so, so important, and I want to talk about this just for one more second. Joel was mentioning just a second ago the story in Matthew chapter three when Jesus goes into the wilderness, and it's kind of funny because I wanted to end this way and just kind of share this thought with you. Jesus has this encounter with John the Baptist. It's their first time seeing one another out of, the, out of the womb that we know of in scripture. Jesus comes down to the river and John the Baptist is like in camel's hair, eating locust and honey, just doing his thing, baptizing people um, in the river. And Jesus comes up and he says to John, John, I need you to baptize me. This is right after John says, this is the lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. Jesus says, John, baptize me, please. John says, no, I actually need you to baptize me. And so they debate for a second. And then ultimately what happens is, is Jesus takes John and he baptizes John. I mean, John takes Jesus and he baptizes him in the river. Jesus comes out. It says, the sky splits, a dove descends, and you hear the voice of the father say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Then the scripture teaches us that the spirit that came upon Jesus drove him into the wilderness, For the next 40 days, Jesus would be tempted by the devil. And I love, you know, it says he's on a fast for 40 days and the enemy comes to him at the end of the fast and he says, Jesus, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. It's a pretty good idea, right? Like if the enemy comes to me at the end of a fast and he's like, Dustin, here is a patty melt from Whataburger, I'm taking it, right? So he comes, it's a good idea. Turn these stones into bread. The fast is over. What the enemy was not trying to get Jesus to do was to turn stones into bread just because, but what he was trying to get Jesus to do was to do something to prove what God had just said about him. God had just said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The enemy comes and he says, if you are the son of God, then do this. See, this is what the enemy does. He likes to get us on this treadmill of performance, constantly trying to do something to prove who God says you are. But I wanna help you understand something tonight. You can't prove or disprove anything that God says about you. You are beloved whether you want to be or not. That's how he feels about you. The point of the story is this. Then he comes to Jesus and he says, if you are the son of God, do this. The problem with the statement is he left out one word. God did not say, this is my son. God said, this is my beloved son. And I believe that the last thing the enemy wants you or me focused on in a season of temptation, in a season of difficulty, in a season called 2020, is for you to be focused on the one key element of what God just said about you, and it's that you are his beloved. It's purposeful the enemy left that word out. And I just wanna encourage you tonight that God wants you to know how he feels about you as his beloved. The truth will set you free. And I hear the truth echoing tonight that is saying, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Would you stand with me tonight? You know, there's many in the room maybe who have kind of wrestled with this idea your entire life that maybe God is frustrated with you, maybe God is angry with you, that you're not quite sure how God feels about you. In the old covenant, Moses went up to see God and it said that God could only show him his backside and from the backside of 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 God Moses came off the mountain and his face was glowing says that if man no man is permitted to see the face of God and live is what Moses said the crazy thing is is Jesus came and now, because of Jesus, we could see God face to face. You never have to question what God looks like. You never have to question how he feels about you. You never have to question whether or not he's frustrated with you. God is radically in love with you tonight. Would you close your eyes? I wanna pray for you. If you're in here tonight and you're like, man, I've, I've kind of wrestled my entire life wondering how God really feels about me. and I, I understand Jesus says that he is the revelation of God but what about all these Old Testament stories? I want to free you tonight with this truth that there is nothing that God is saying today that is outside of the person of Jesus. If there's anything in your life that doesn't, any thought in your mind that that you have about God that is not found in the person of Jesus, then that thing has to be called into question. Hebrews 1 says this, It says, in the past, God spoke to us through ancestors and prophets, but in these days, he has spoken to us by a son. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So I just wanna pray for a second that God would give us a revelation of what he looks like in the face of Jesus and that you would never question another day in your life how he feels about you. So God, we thank you that you showed us what you looked like through the incarnation that you came to earth to reveal to us what God really looked like, to answer every question, to make every wrong right, to fix our broken thinking about what we thought you looked like. And you said, here I am. And you showed up in the form of the Christ. And so tonight, Lord, we look upon the face of Jesus and we trust that you really are as good as you say you are. We trust that you really are full of love. We trust that you really are full of grace, God. And we trust tonight your words over our lives. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. And I pray tonight, Lord, that any untruth that we've embraced about you, Lord, would wash away as we catch the gaze of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.